My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script. I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it. I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot. I even got a famous classic case of writer's block. Get it out of my head. Get it out of my head. Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me today, back for her annual podcast, is Lee Jessup. Hello, Lee. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Every year, Lee Jessup, because she is a fantastic career coach, comes on to discuss the writing trends that were popular in this year and also (laughs) shares what's ahead for the new year. Just a reminder that Lee is also the author of Breaking In. Tales from the Screenwriting Trenches, that is out with uh, from Focal, Tr- Focal Press, and also Getting It Right, an insider's guide to a screenwriting career. She's a career coach for screenwriters with an exclusive focus on the screenwriter's professional development. Her clients include working film and TV writers and writers who've sold feature specs and original pilots and pitches, and they've sold them to major studios, networks, contest winners. Oh my God, it goes on and on. Um, in in addition, um, she is a consultant for NBC International Sales Team, as well as a mentor for Universal's prestigious Universal Writers Program. Did I get all that right, Lee? Is there anything else you want to add? Okay, cool. So, <laughs> the last time we were together, it was... Well, the last time we were together on this podcast, shall I say. <laughs> it was December of 2019, such a such an innocent time. Do you remember December of 2019? I remember that we were in the same room and didn't think twice about it, which was amazing in retrospect. Oh my god. And talking about the trends for that year and also what was projected for the next year, forget about it. There was no way you could have foreseen what the what the next year 2020 would oh, actually no. be like. Oh, my God. No, and listen, at that time we were talking about, is there going to be a strike? Right. You know, what's going on with the ATA and the WJ, which, by the way, is still going on, but has changed significantly since then. But everybody was kind of bracing themselves. Is there going to be a WGA strike? Or is the WGA going to strike against the AMPTP, which everybody thought was going to happen come May? And, well, we know what happened in March, so there goes that. Do you think that, okay, when we were all back on our feet and vaccinated and all that kind of stuff, do you think that's still a possibility? Do you think people will like wake up, go back to work and start fighting again? <laughs> like, how's this well, going to work? The contract with the AMPTP has been extended and signed already. So once it's up for renewal again, sure. Um, we can talk about what will be possible then. The, the reality was that, While the WGA was certainly fighting for a lot of very, very good things and very important things for writers, the bottom line was that when you have a two-month work stoppage and a pandemic that's brought the economy to its knees, you can't really strike, Mm -hmm. right? You can't can't really kind of ignore the state of the world and go, well, really happy for all of y'all that you've been unemployed and production's been stopped and, 
you know, crew people are not working and, and yada, yada, yada. We're now going to strike for a month or two or three or whatever it takes to get what we want. Um, so the WGA actually acknowledged that because their negotiating power that was really in the ability to strike was circumvented, they weren't able to get as far as they might have wanted, but it will be up for renewal again. Um, there's also going to be some negotiations coming up with new media contracts. So you have to remember that the AMPTP, which is the the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television, Television Producers, represents studios and networks, not new media company under which falls Netflix and Apple and Amazon. Um, they are working under different contracts that are going to be up for negotiations as well. So we'll see what happens there. When do we stop calling all this new media? I mean, you know, when we first came up with this expression, it was because it was like, ooh, there's something called the internet and there might be internet content. But just because it comes to your TV through a different device streaming. I mean, it's still movies, TV, right? Like, why are we even putting these in different categories? Shouldn't it all be the same thing? Or is that exactly the point? Well, no, I I agree with you that it should be the, the same thing. And ultimately, the interesting thing is that when I will talk to writers who are outside of the industry, um, and they'll say, okay, so how do I get my movie in front of Netflix or my series in front of Netflix? I don't want to go to networks. I want to go just to Netflix. Today, Netflix and Amazon and Apple, they're all on the buyer's tour, mm-hmm. right? When a writer takes out a pitch, when a writer takes out a spec, it goes to a bunch of buyers and Netflix and Amazon and Apple. They're all going to be part of that buyer's tour that will hopefully consider the material and potentially put an offer on the material, um, you know, the reality today is that we have jo- Shonda Rhimes at Netflix. We have Ryan Murphy at Netflix. Um, you know, we have some really big content creators who've taken their deals out of the network space of Fox and ABC and whatnot and moved over to Netflix and the like, thereby anointing them to be a very um, standard distribution platform for content. No longer this mysterious unicorn unicorn that is new media. So, so yeah, maybe putting them all under the same umbrella and just calling it for what it is and having sort of standard writing contracts, whether it's happens to have commercials in it or not, might be a way to do it. Or am I just, I'm just, is that too simplistic? I think, it, I mean, I think it's a great idea. I think it's simplistic. I think the reality is that Netflix and Amazon have been able to produce the amount of content that they have because they are not under the same WGA pay guidelines as networks, basic cable and premium cable. Ah. Right? Their, their pay structure is different and they're allowed to get away with a lot more. So I'm sure that they'll resist it in some fashion and try to do what they can um, to not have that happen, to not fall under the same umbrella contract as say ABC. But we'll see how negotiations go and, and uh, where it all takes us. Did, did, did the writers get anything in the last contract? Uh, they got a little bit yeah. of something, not, not as much. Um, they got a little bit. Um, you know, there, there's more to be negotiated as far as the pay disparity between working for Netflix and working for ABC. Um, you know, the reality is with an ABC you do your show, you get res- you get your episode fees, then you get residuals. Then if you go into syndication, which doesn't happen quite so much anymore, you get additional fees. 
with Netflix, we don't have that same structure. So we're trying to move into a structure that compensates the writer in a manner that is similar um, or that has some similarity, even a slight one, to what one would get when working on a network show because they're, those are just very different animals. Do animated, animators ever fall into this anim, animation writers? Because I mean, we have a lot of animation writers on the, on the, on the show and it, it's like they live in a completely different land when it comes to this kind of stuff. So animation writers are under their own guild. <laughs> um, so it gets even more complicated. Um, so yeah, so it, it is yet another different set of rules. Got it. Got it. So what else were we talking about projecting ahead in 2020 that <laughs> do you do you remember? Well, we were talking a lot, I'm sure, about the ATA WGA fight, right? Because which is the the battle between the WGA with the um Alliance of Television Agencies, Association of Television, not Television Talent. Sorry, um, too too many acronyms. Um, <clears throat> the battle started in April of 2019 when writers in mass left their agents uh, from agencies that were ATA signatories. Um, and, you know, it was all a fight against packaging fees and affiliated production fees. Uh, so packaging fees is the 3% packaging fee an agency will take when putting together a package on a particular movie or TV show. They take 3% off the budget. Um, affiliated productions are productions that are done um, with companies that have an affiliation with a particular agency. So the agency becomes the buyer and the seller at the same time, which means that they are less likely to be able to be to be beholden to their fiduciary duty to negotiate in the best interest of their clients if they're also the buyer trying to get the best deal. Right. Um, so we saw the exodus from agencies in April 2019, which was promptly followed by a lawsuit that was filed. Um, then in the summer and into the fall, we saw some agencies come back on board and sign franchise agreements with the WGA. The big four were still out at that point. So the big four, four are UTA, CAA, WME, and um, ICM, and they're the ones that the suits are filed against. Um, since then, and since the new year, UTA and ICM signed. Another one that signed was Paradigm. Um, Paradigm has had a uh, an unfortunate um, year, year and a bit. Um, just to, they didn't do anything deliberately wrong, but because of the way that everything has worked out, um, it didn't do them a lot of favors, to say the least. Um, you know, they're while they contend that they weren't trying to sell, the word around town was that they were trying to sell Paradigm to a bigger agency. That didn't happen because they were trying to sell to a bigger agency, as it was rumored to be. Um, they didn't sign a franchise agreement with the WGA. Finally, they decided to sign with the WGA at the end of March. But at the end of March, we're already in pandemic. So, you know, if you're an agent, booking revenue is not going to be easy at that point because you have to remember stoppage was across the board. It, it was directors. It was talent. It was music. It was just across the board. Ironically, the only sect of professions that can, was able to continue to work was writers. Yes, I have noticed that. I have noticed. So yeah, the writers, I mean, ironically, I had a number of writers that had a bunch of studio, no, each, not a bunch, each one had one, uh, but a bunch of writers with pending studio contracts right as the pandemic hit. And it was fascinating to see how everything closed by March 30th to get writers working. 
Huh. It was really fascinating because that was when studios kind of went, oh, yeah, no, we can get them working. So when this is over, we have the scripts ready. So things got closed contract wise really fast. But Paradigm signed right at that point when they could, you know, booking revenue across the board was tough. Um, there wasn't a traditional staffing season this year that usually takes place April to, to June. Ironically, I started having writers go out for staffing early as early as February, because there was a pending strike, remember, in May. Right. That didn't happen. Um, Paradigm ended up laying off a significant amount of agents. Um, you know, there's a question of where Paradigm will be in a year's time. There's a question about where WME will be in a year's time, because don't forget, WME went for an IPO in late 2019 that didn't go so well for them. They still haven't signed with the WGA they are, you know, very leveraged in debt. And like everybody else, they weren't able to book revenue for a period of time. And you have to remember, like, live music is not back. Um, sports are limited. There's just limits across the board. It's not just your filmmaking and TV making talent. It's, it's across every sector of business. So let's talk about projecting forward to uh, 2021 um, when... Well, who knows what's going to happen? But right before we got on, we were talking about how how hopeful we are. Um, the vaccine, you know, we we have a vaccine. When we'll all be vaccinated? Who knows? Um, but and also, as you mentioned, I have seen and you have seen that the writers who were already in rooms stayed in rooms and actually got busier than ever churning out this content so that they can pull the trigger on production as soon as this happens. They've been doing it through Zoom. Um, Some of the more high-level writers I've talked to in these Zoom rooms are like, this actually works better. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot less, you know, messing around and just getting food and small talk, you know, people just do their job and they get out. So they, you know, it hasn't really impacted it too much on a creative level that way. But um, what for creatives, just, you know, uh, trends that you see going forward in terms of what people are going to be looking for, what you've heard they're looking for, Ways of writing. I'm just I'm curious what you think. So I'll actually take it a step back and say that to your what I'm sure will be your surprise. I'm hugely optimistic for writers. Um, and I think I'm I'm a big believer that there is work out there for writers. And and, you know, I have a job. You have a job. Managers have a job because new writers continue to break in. Right. Yes. We have that work because we we are continuously seeing new talent emerge. Um, I I sat down a few days ago. One of my writers reminded me that I always tell everybody to celebrate the wins uh, because things are always tough and and it's a tough profession and you have to celebrate the wins because we know you're going to mourn the losses. So I was talking to a client of mine who was like, Lee, you got to celebrate the wins because I was talking about whatever I was talking about. So I said, okay, you know, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to celebrate the wins. (laughs) And I sat down and I wrote out a list of all the good things that happened to clients this year. And it was mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's a testament to the fact that content remains and is now more than ever a growth industry. Um, The reason being that first of all, during pandemic, people stayed home, wanted to watch a lot of content moving forward, even with a vaccine, 
what this pandemic has done is kind of awakened us to our own vulnerability. And while I think that in some level, movie theaters will find their way back despite Warner Brothers pulling all their titles or not pulling, but doing day and day drops um, in, t- in 2021, releasing both PVOD and on, on HBO Max. And I actually don't know if it will be VOD or just HBO Max. Um, I think it's just HBO Max. So I just corrected myself. Um, <laughs> and movie theaters all, you know, on the same day, I still think that there is going to be some movement to get back to movie theater. But I, I think that we've become much more aware of our own vulnerability. And because of that, we are societally going to be more homebound. And when we are more homebound, we watch more content. Um, and so things happened this year that haven't, haven't happened in the few years leading up to it that have made me abundantly optimistic about what is possible for writers today. So a client of mine in October, early October, late September, this past year that I've been working with for three years, who wasn't known to the industry, there was no nepotism involved, there's no, you know, he knew the head of yada, 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 um, managed to surface a screenplay through the script pipeline contest where he was finalist. Uh, Long story short, the script went on to sell for seven figures. Wow. We have not seen a seven-figure deal for a new writer at least a decade. I mean, it, it was a ridiculous deal. Like, he will tell you it's a ridiculous deal. His lawyer will tell you it was a ridiculous deal. It was a ridiculous deal. It was a wonderful script. I'm not taking away from the writing at all. But it was just such a great reminder of what is possible for new writers. And the fact that the industry is hungry for great content more than ever before, we've, you know, kind of recovered from the launch and quick death of Quibi. Um, We've gone back to more traditional half hour, one hour, two hour content blocks. Um, And I find that the industry is really, really hungry um, for work. And I can tell you that my working writers have more coming at them than ever before. My new writers, I've had more writers get signed this year. Wow. Everybody busy being busy with managers telling me, you know, I don't, I have, I can only work half time now because I'm at home with my wife and my kid and my wife works and, and, you know, my kid has schooling. So I'm with a kid half the time. She's with a kid half the time. That means I only work 50% of what I used to work. Even so I've had more writers get signed this year. I've had more, I have a writer director that I work with who's directing his first feature as we speak for hire. That speaks to the search for new voices, the need for writers and directors that the industry has and will have moving forward. And you have to remember that it's an industry of innovators. So we're going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. We always have. Yeah. Um, You know, going back to your question of the trends, you know, where are we moving in terms of industry trends? What are we seeing? What I'm seeing is a, a hunger for two kind of umbrellas under which different content can fall. One is social social justice. I do think that there is more desire for content creators, for storytellers to tell into intimate stories with real substantive meaning and, and social commentary um, that is drawn from personal experience, whatever that experience may be, uh, but underrepresented experience 
um, is the important thing here. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely talking to industry execs who are looking for that, but they're potentially looking for that disguised, right? So we're looking for more Get Out, mm-hmm. right? That is a horror film, but it has a lot to say. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking for more of those stories that are intrinsically connected to the storyteller um, that really capitalize on the storyteller's experience and brings that to the forefront, even if it's in a completely fictionalized manner. Um, so it's the write what you know, but don't write what you know, literally take what you've experienced and, and make it the most cinematic or episodic vision that you can. Um, so that's first and foremost, but I'm also look, or I'm also seeing and hearing about a search for escapism. And escapism can go anywhere from horror to comedy, right? The idea is we just don't want more real life. Real life, <laughs> I have a bummer. Mm-hmm. We don't want more of it. We don't want politics because, oh my God, I don't know about you, but you know, I've had enough for a while. <laughs> um, we don't want more conspiracy theories because, wow, uh, <laughs> we certainly um, are not seeing a great deal of hunger for pandemic projects. I know that right as everything started, a lot of writers were talking about like, oh, do I write the pandemic movie? Michael Bay just made a pandemic movie and Michael Bay can, can do whatever he wants. But I think for the most part, when people are looking to do everything from reading a script to watching content, they're looking to escape the reality of the times, um, not to submerge in the reality of the times. And it's very true to what we do in wartime and economic depression, right? We look for comedy. We look for fantasy. We look for things to take us out of it. Um, you know, I'm suddenly watching a lot of The Crown, Certainly. I, me too. I had never watched it really before. And I was like, I just want something that's going to kind of take me away and yet feel it feel dramatic. And I found the crown after so many seasons. And I just can't stop watching. Yeah, I'm just yeah. I, I watched season finale of season four last night. I watched the entire thing in like four weeks, so it was like a season a week. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, and it's escapism. I, I know nothing about queendom, um, and the crown, nor does it bear any resemblance to my life for good or bad, despite what I would like to think. Um, so yeah, we're looking for that. I mean, the joke was that for a while, a lot of people were watching the West Wing as kind of aspirational politics, uh, back where Paula went politics was well, well behaved. Look at this little fantasy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody's nice. And right. People right. Working together and- you know, but we're looking for a lot of that. We're looking for a lot of heightened reality. We're looking for a lot of laughter. We're just looking to escape. We're looking to escape our reality. And I think I think it's been a growing trend since 2016 when we saw viewership trends really change. When the average American went from watching 30 to 45 minutes of national news a day to four and a half to five hours. Mm-hmm. And at that point, suddenly nobody wanted anything to do with politics about anything. I think in many ways that's still true. And I think that there's still kind of the trauma of recent years in politics that nobody wants to go near it. Nobody wants to deal with that day in, day out. So we're not really looking for that kind of content. Now, tomorrow, now that I've said this, a huge political film is going to sell tomorrow. Sure, of course. <laughs> well, that's what it always goes. Also, when you say social justice, so people might be saying, wait, wait a minute, you said social justice and now you're saying no politics. But what we're talking about with social social justice is 
so not escapism, but if you're digging into social justice, it's to show a story, you know, where it's moral is social justice yeah. or where where it's showing uh, the possible uh, consequences when you have social injustice. Right. So it's it's not just looking at stories the same way we've always looked at them. I'm very excited about looking at genre stories through a 2020 lens now with what we know could be possible now because we've lived so much of it. Now, what does your, you know, domestic thriller look like or your courtroom drama or even your romantic comedy? You know, Um, this goes to, well, you don't, of course, like, again, it doesn't have to be a pandemic movie. And like you said, we might kind of back off from that. If you're writing something, you can't ignore what life has been like and that in the future, we're going to have been affected by that. So I'm I'm kind of going on the fence with some some particular content that I'm working with writers on as to what to do about that. Like, for example, I just saw a commercial and I thought it handled it right. You saw a woman walk into her office with a mask on. Okay, then sit down at a cubicle that is, you know, 10 feet away from her other cubicle people, take off her mask and have the conversation about whatever product it is that you're that you're going to do. But it didn't it didn't pretend that we're in a non-COVID world, yet it wasn't about COVID. It was just part of our normal. So just like riding a subway to work might be part of your normal, now watching people with masks on that same subway might be part of the normal in future movies. That was a long way to go. But I guess I guess I'm just saying like to me I think it's okay and probably a good idea to integrate what may be our 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 future. I don't know. What what do you think? I don't know. You know, there there are Certainly TV shows are an interesting model for that because they are shooting while we're in this mm-hmm. you know, with extras. And how do you handle that? Right. How do you keep your people safe? How do you shoot for the moment? Um, considering that they'll be airing, they'll likely be airing episodes before we're all vaccinated. Um, so I think that 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 is a really interesting um, viewpoint because they're kind of between commercial and movie right, where they are working in today's world. I know that there is not a great deal of desire to watch people in masks. Um, I also know that masks are of the moment, which is why television, and I can tell you having writers in many different rooms, different shows are finding different ways to embrace it or not, Mm -hmm. and making those choices. Um, You know, I think it really pertains to a unique piece of work. The hope is that Let's hope in a year's time when you and I are recording this, we are back in the same room. We are vaccinated. Um, masks are not as prevalent. You know, I, I have masks in every room of this house, um, as, as I'm sure you do. Um, so what does it look like in movies? And do we want to go back to that time? We'll find out. And also the reality for movie making is that what we're writing today We'll be very fortunate if it's produced in a year or two. That is true. So with 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 feature, you can you know imagine a, a back to normal as opposed yeah. to TV, which is maybe dig a little bit into the new normal because it's yeah. more immediate. With, with features, you have a longer view to getting made and getting on the screen. With TV, specifically TV that's already in production, 
you're shooting now to potentially air in as soon as six weeks if you want a super tight schedule or 12 or 18 or 20 weeks if you have that luxury, right? But generally, you know, when a writer is assigned an episode in a writer's room, that show, that episode will likely be on the air in, you know, two months time, Mm -hmm. three months time. I remember a writer of mine calling me once in September 1st and saying, I was just assigned an episode. The problem is it starts rolling on September 14th. And it started rolling on September 14th because its air date was in October. Ah, yeah. And that's a super, even if it, even if it was like the very last day of October, we're talking about a two month turnaround. So TV deals in real life more so than movies and movies. Interestingly, I have a lot of writers because of the product of the time who are on different studio projects. Interestingly, nobody was told to augment their script if it's, set period set to be more quote unquote COVID friendly. Hmm. Uh, So less people on the scene, less stuff indoors, more out. We haven't had those conversations yet, or most of my writers do not have the, have those conversations and present day content has, because none of them are writing material that specifically plugs into the politics of the moment um, or kind of current affairs. None of them have been told to augment their script to a COVID reality. You know, I have a, a director, a writer-director client, um, and she's she's gotten to a certain level now where, you know, these are higher-profile projects, and was just given the script and said, can you do a, a COVID pass on this in terms of the production uh, logistics of it? So I have had one one writer-director, and she was just like, oh, my God, you know, and it again, it meant separating people, less people in crowds, and she was like, oh. No, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard. I think it probably bodes well, though, for independent filmmakers who need a smaller budget anyway, and now have an excuse to have less, a less populated world like that might become a new normal in, in independent features and won't make, make it look cheaper. It'll make it look like, well, that's just what movies look like right now. Listen, interestingly, when the production mandates came down in June, the changes that have to happen to physical production in order for production to move forward, everybody freaked out, mm-hmm. right? It was going to cost 20% more on average on your average budget. Um, it's going to extend your necessary time by 20% because everything takes longer. Um, and I have people who work as crew and independent film who are like, all right, not going to be working for a while. All of them are working. A number of them have done back-to-back movies. Um, And it goes back to the idea of industry of innovators. We will find a way to get it done. And sometimes it means containing a movie more. Sometimes it means eliminating a character that wasn't really necessary, but we'd like to have him around. Um, There are ways to go about it. And we are definitely seeing the industry step up and respond because production is busy. And and we're recording this as stay-at-home uh, guidelines are coming back down in California. I don't know if you've been paying attention to this. They have not thus far touched the production guidelines. Wow. Um, which is great. <laughs> Be- but also production and sets have been really diligent about checking temperatures about, I mean, I have a friend who just got off of a studio movie. They were testing 
the, you know, kind of the, the front line. So director, DP, all of those, they were testing twice a day. Well, I think that's um, probably because they have royalty to, to protect, right? Like the exactly. celebrities, the stars, the talent, right? So, so <laughs> they have to be protected, which makes sense because they're the ones that are really kind of the frontline workers in that particular industry, right? They're, they Absolutely. have to have masks off. They have to be protected. And yes. so, so therefore, so does everybody else. I'm, I'm actually, um, uh, interviewing the writers of that Michael Bay movie that you just talked about uh, <laughs> next week. And they'll be on the show in a couple of weeks. And it really will be interesting to find out, like, how did they make a pandemic movie? I think it was during the pandemic. Yeah, they shot in like the summer. They shot in June. They they were really fast out the gate. Um, they embraced the pandemic of it all and went and made a movie. And amazing. But I, again, it speaks to the spirit of the industry of one way or another, we're going to get it done. <laughs> okay. Uh, for, you know, some years it was right TV. Some years it was right feature. Do you have a, if you were going to start with a brand new writer who was kind of on the fence as to what he, she, or they want to do, would you steer them in any particular direction right now? Um. Listen, I still maintain that there's more opportunity for exposure and feature, but less opportunity to make money or make real money or make consistent money. Hmm. Um, I think the formats complement each other. And I think for me, the guiding light is what is the story that you're most passionate to tell and what is the right format for it? Um, Not every story is just as good as a film as it is a TV show. And I think that part of it is discovering where your innate storytelling instincts take you. Is it features? Is it television? What are the stories you're really eager to tell? Um, and what's the, the best format to do it in? Um, so I'm becoming, and this is certainly something that's been happening to me over years. It's not something that's happened over, overnight. Um, I continue to gain more and more conviction that the single most important thing that a writer has outside of craft and knowing what they're doing and learning what, what they need to do. And, you know, having the chops to tell a story, right. Assuming you have the chops, you have the tools, you have the support to construct a meaningful story is passion for the story that you're telling because I've seen stories that were conceptually challenged, say the least executed with such perfectionist craft and with so much passion that they've overcome their innate challenges. And I've seen conceptually solid ideas falter because it was a purely intellectual pursuit. Um, Over the years, I've been taught by my clients and by the industry again and again that the writer's passion for a story, once they know how to tell that story, is kind of unparalleled. And that's, that's what has to drive it. I mean, even my client that sold that huge um, spec earlier this year, it was inspired by he and his wife's love story. Aww. Right? It was personal to him. It was meaningful. It's not personal. Like, there's nothing that you would see it on the page and be like, Oh, yeah, that's Crosby. I knew it. It's, yeah. that's not, no, it's, it's a sci fi love story. But it's personal and meaningful. And that passion transcended the page. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking, 
much like audiences, we're looking to escape. We're looking for a ride. And I find that passion is intoxicating and infectious. Do you think that with all of the Zoom work that that has been going on now, do you think it helps level the playing field for non-LA writers? Since everybody can see how, you know, we can talk through computer and it kind of doesn't matter where you are? I think for film more so than TV, I think TV will go back to a more tactile world. My In my experience, and I think that that's where we, where we might be hearing different things, most of my writers who are in Zoom rooms hate the Zoom rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there is something that is just more energetic about pitching ideas, breaking story in a room full of people where everybody can jump in, where nobody's distracted, where everybody's present, where you don't have to pause to wait and see if anybody else is going to say anything. Um, So I do think rooms, for the most part, will go back to in-person rooms. Um, I don't know about generals. Generals is a big question mark for me. I'm wondering whether generals will still be at least partially on Zoom. Yeah, makes uh, sense. We're talking about general meetings here. You yeah. know, the water bottle tour that you hear so much mentioned on this show. <laughs> yeah, so I think that those may very well stay at least in part on Zoom. I think pitch meetings will go back to in-person as soon as they can, because when you get in business with a person, you just prefer to be in the in the room with them. You prefer to get a sense of their energy, of who they are, um, face-to-face, if you're going to be committing to working closely with them, sp- spending a lot of money on working with them. Um, so I do think those pitch meetings will go back, for the most part, to some in-person reality. Interestingly, um, Margot Robbie and Ben Stiller took out a pilot pitch um, earlier in the season um, and it sold, and it sold quickly, and everybody talked about it, and it was really, really well done, well produced. We haven't seen another one to follow, which I find to be really interesting. Um, it didn't become the new model for the moment. Maybe it will still. Um, but ultimately, I think that the consensus in the industry is as soon as you can pitch in person again, you will. Um, for the moment, interestingly, I have writers in writers' rooms who are not in LA right now because they don't have to be. Uh, but the expectation is that at some point we will be back in person. But I do think that initial introductions over Zoom will happen more. General meetings will happen more over Zoom. I do think that feature writers will have an e- even easier time now that Zoom has been embraced. We'll see about TV. That one remains to be seen for me. You know, okay, so this is just my my personal experience. This year, I did some pitch coaching for the international writers who came into the MIA market in Italy. Okay, MIA market is like a it's a European film market, like the American film market, like AFM. And um, I was working with 15 writers or 15 writer writing teams sometimes. Um, and they were required to bring in uh, a mood trailer and a pitch deck and pitch at the same time as they were showing their pitch deck. Why? Because 
at the Mia Market, they work on a great big stage and it's very much a show where they would show these visuals, right? And they would pitch. Well, that's not always the case. If you go into a room, right? An executive's rooms, they don't have like, you know, a big projector for you to show it. That's not like, it hasn't been the norm. But one thing I found was when they were doing this on computer with me and they were pitching and I was seeing the deck and I couldn't help but see the deck because I'm looking at my computer, suddenly that pitch took on a whole new kind of feeling. And I just wonder if this allows people to incorporate visuals in a way they have only awkwardly been able to incorporate them in in, in in-person pitching. I'm just, to me, that's where I see like more possibilities. Like you can put it right on the computer and like, look, watch my trailer. I'm watching it with you right on computer. Look at my pitch deck. I can narrate it as I'm showing you things. And suddenly people are seeing the visual possibility, not just, it's not just oral. Listen, I I think on the professional side of things, writers have been bringing kind of pitch aids into the room with them. Mm -hmm. So whether it's character boards where they put up images of the different characters, sometimes as they are talking about that character, they'll put up a picture um, the picture of that character and tell us about it and then add another one and tell us some more. Others have been bringing mood board or, you know, kind of boards detailing the look and feel of a particular period in time. So we've seen this obviously in a more clunky fashion. Right. More it's clunky. It's been very yeah. Mad Men like here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, it's like yeah. it hasn't had this sort of seamless feel to it. And I'm just I don't know. I was very excited by this. I'm like, wow, I think there's a whole new way to do this. That, I don't know, it could keep people, you know, from having to brave traffic, get their parking validated, get the bottle of water, sit in the waiting room, have the awkward introduction. You know what I mean? For me, all that stuff sounds stressful. (laughs) For some people, they love it. I guess it depends on your personality. I, I think that that can certainly become a greater component in the way that we present a pitch. But I think that for those buyers who do want to buy, they will ask to see the content creator face-to-face if they can. Got it. Got it. If if we have COVID behind us. Lee, what is wrong with me? Because I have to say, right, I'm not going back to probably in-person podcasting. I love you. All right. But, But I don't mind doing it by Zoom. And for some reason, I like it better. I don't know why. But it's got to have something to do with my, like, psyche. There's got to be something wrong with me. I don't know what kind of personality that is. It's like, no, I'm digging this. <laughs> no, listen, and I get it. I mean, I don't know what coaching looks like for me in a year. Because right now I'm doing everything on Zoom. Where a year ago, I was in person three and a half to four days a week. And on Skype and Zoom, only a day to at most a day and a half a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would do, you know, eight to nine back-to-back meetings in one day, mm-hmm. every day. Um, and I loved it. And I loved where I worked. I was, you know, taking meetings on the regular at Akasha Cafe in Culver City, where, you know, they've allowed me to be a staple for eight freaking years. <laughs> um, let's let's call it what it is. They hadn't kicked me out. And amazing. And I couldn't imagine letting it go. But now I'm doing everything on Zoom. And I don't know what it looks like in a year's time. I don't know if my clients want to go back 
to meeting in person. I don't know if people have gotten comfortable with this. Oh, I don't have to drive or find parking or, you know, get there too early or get there too late or stress out. There's definitely elements that raise questions about how we do things moving forward. You know what I I love overall for everybody, I mean, as far as the lemonade that could be made by this huge lemon is uh, is. Uh, how it could help working parents. Um, I mean, the fact that, that, you know, especially women in the industry have been um, uh, pushed out or made to feel other because of being a parent, you know, is, is just so wrong, you know, especially when so much content involves stories about families, you know, and if there could be something that integrates, you know, taking care of your kid and your work at the same time, I think that it would be, you know, economically better for people. It would be better on a stress level. And, uh, and I think that you'd get more creative content out of it as well. So um, I'm, I'm just hoping people will see that you can parent and work and get excellent work out of working parents, um, you know, without them coming into an office all the time. And the same thing goes for pitching, same thing goes for meetings. You know, somebody doesn't have to pay all this amount of money for a babysitter just so they can go in and take one meeting. Um, so that's my, that's my little soapbox. There you go. There you go. It's a very good soapbox. So. <laughs> I just remember feeling like that so much when, when I, when I first had kids, like, wait a minute, <laughs> this should be easier. Yeah, I mean, I'm a mother to myself. Sometimes you feel like you have to make a choice uh, between your kids and your work. Um, and it's certainly all of this has reframed what we're able to do and engage in. Um, and, you know, I'm in general, a big believer that a woman shouldn't have to choose. No. Um, that you should be able to have both. And I think one of the conversations that I appreciate, but also that just piss me off is when a female writer will come to me and say, I want to be a writer, but I also want to be a mom. What, how do I choose? Right. Like, no, and no, 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 you choose. never hear that from a man. Like, oh, I think I want to be a dad and a writer. Which one? No. <laughs> and, and I'm a big believer that you don't have to choose. No. Right. I'm a big believer that you have to find ways to embrace both. And if you don't leave it up for negotiation, then it's not negotiation. Um, But I think that certainly it's changed our lives. I think it'll be interesting when kids here in California go back to in-person schools. Um, You know, my my thing is like, oh, I I can just never be sick again because my kids are always here. Mm -hmm. And my kids are like, oh, you have a headache, but I still need this. So can you take me over there? Like, no, mom's sick. Um, (laughs) But I do think that hopefully for especially women in the industry, it will change things. And I know that, you know, I work with more and more moms that have kids who are in the other room and dads with the kids while they're on a call with me and dads with the kids when they're on a pitch session or something that's happening. Um, And I think that because mom and dad are both home, there's, you know, just a a more equal distribution of the work there. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Lee, I love our conversations. I'm so glad that you come in once a year and really tell us like, yeah, this is kind of what's been going on and this is what you can look toward. And it all feels very exciting and hopeful. So thank you. Um, I want to let everybody know that if you want more Lee Jessup, well, 
Well, who doesn't? Um, Lee is a regular uh, guest teacher in the Rewrite Techniques class. The Rewrite Techniques class um, is now online three times a year. The next one is February 20th through March 13th. Those are four Saturdays in a row, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. I take you for, through the first three Saturdays, helping you rewrite or reapproach your particular project. So you can do it with as little as an outline. Um, and we sort of take it an element at a time, um, a story pass, a character pass, etc. And then Lee comes in and does her magic and tells you how to think about your career strategies moving forward, gives you a sense of the industry and also how you can make a plan as a writer toward um, uh, moving forward in your career. So that is going to be February 20th through March 13th. Before that is the writing feature film class that is going to start in January and run for four Saturdays in January. I will tell you now that if any of you out there want to take both classes, I will send you an invoice so you can pay up front for both classes and take 15% off. Okay, I know, but you have to write me and tell me you want to take both classes. And again, I'll send you an invoice. You pay for both, but there will be 15% off the price for both. So just email me and just, you know, let me know that if that's what you want. Um, Either way, go to onthepage.tv and you can see um, the, the dates and times for all of the online classes that are going to be happening in 2021, which I'm very excited about. Um, Lee, where can people go and see more about your coaching and other stuff and your books and all that? Where should they go? So all of that can be found on my website, leejessup.com. Fairly straightforward. Um, I'm also fairly, well, active-ish on Twitter, um, at Jessup. I do want to thank you for bringing me back year after year. It's become such a great touchstone um, and such a great moment that we get to share together every year, kind of looking back on what was, and this was wow. Um, <laughs> and looking a little bit ahead and um, assessing where we are, it gives me a great opportunity to to just sit and reflect and, you know, hang out with you, which I always love because you bring so many great things into the writing space and writing community. Um, so I'm really grateful that we've been doing this for all the years we've been doing it and can't thank you enough. Thank you, Lee. Aw. Okay. Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm giving you a Zoom high five. There you go. Ready? Er, Zoom high five. Okay. <laughs> cool. Cool. Okay. Uh, thanks again to Lee for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening and have a good writing week. <laughs>